what an opportunity to shape the next generation, to shape people to avoid the mistakes we've made. Because if you've been in this game for a while, if you've moved up in the organization, trust me, you've made plenty of mistakes. If you can help the next person to make fewer, it's a stronger community and they'll thank you for it. They really will when they see that they got to dodge a bullet because you pointed it out to them. From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore, and today I speak with Michael St. Vincent, CISO at the Cosmopolitan of Las Vegas. Michael and I talk about helping the next wave of CISOs by sharing real-life learning scenarios, the culture of always having the answer, and the three tenets of his leadership style, confidence, coaching, and kindness. Growing your confidence as a young leader sets you up for success. But how can you prevent that from turning into something ugly later on? How can a simple, I don't know, but let's find out, and a problem-solving approach completely change your leadership dynamic? Michael, thank you so much for being on the show. If you would, uh, for the uninitiated, introduce yourself and tell us where you work. Oh, thanks for inviting me. So my name is Michael St. Vincent. I'm the Chief Information Security Officer at the Cosmopolitan of Las Vegas, which is a resort casino in the heart of the Las Vegas Strip. I've worked there for six years now and have, throughout my career, wandered from defense industry into the financial industry boutique consulting, ISP, and somehow ended up here. That hotel, it's fantastic. I'm looking forward to making it back uh, soon, I hope. Is there a little bit, maybe not on the security topic, but is there one thing that, that I would be surprised to know about the hotel or maybe even a, a favorite, but maybe quasi-hidden place to go or visit, restaurant, an attraction that most don't know about? What's your favorite kind of surprise thing you like to share about the hotel and, and working within it? So broadly, my favorite thing about it is, I think from the guest experience, uh, you've seen it. Anybody that goes there, the first thing that strikes them is just it's a really beautiful place, more compact than a lot of places. And it's from the very beginning, they set this culture there that's very artsy and, and offbeat. That alone is just nice because it's, it's pretty. It's a, a joy to kind of walk through. As far as you know, something fun, something interesting. Uh, for years, there's been this place called Secret Pizza. It's a pizzeria. It's, it's not a very well-guarded secret, but people love finding it. And it's not intentionally hidden. It's just a place that when they built out all the restaurants, they had like this little, very small amount of space left in the corner that was unusable. And they said, well, everything's got to be uh, an opportunity. So they had enough room for a couple of pizza ovens, a cash register, and a counter, and that's about it. But because it's down a corridor where people don't find it, and it never actually got a name, it's the only restaurant without a name at the property. It's just called Pizzeria. But somehow I've got this uh, thing about secret pizza, and I've literally been standing there, guests walk up. They are like 50 feet from the entrance. It's like, I've looked everywhere. Can you tell me where the secret pizza is? It's like, it's right there. 
So uh, fun to go have. And the pizza is actually pretty, pretty darn good and not overly priced. So if you get there, go find it. If you can't find it, give me a call. So I actually have had that pizza and it is a little bit difficult to find. It's kind of, if I remember correctly, it's down a kind of a narrow-ish hallway and it's not well-marked and it is reasonably priced. I, I remember thinking that it wasn't sort of Las Vegas priced. I don't remember. It was either really late at night or really early in the morning, depending on how you keep time when I had it. So some details might be off, but I think that it, I do remember someone I was with knew about it. So I, I would encourage those to seek out the secret pizza. But beyond that, talking more about you and information security and your career, one of the topics I love to cover is just advice that you would give your younger self. It's kind of a backward mentorship question. You stated out of the gate, well, almost without hesitation, that you would have networked more. That was just jump street what you had to say. Why is that? Why do, we, why, do, why do you wish the younger version of yourself would have done that? Well, I think it was a very critical mistake for myself. I'm a, I'm a little more kind of closed person. And I don't know why I had the thought that it was all about not connecting to people, not be more secretive. Instead, it's quite the opposite. It's, it's a community. It's only grown to be a bigger community over the years. And it's not that you have to be friends with everybody because there's a lot of various opinions, a lot of really great arguments in the, the whole information security space, but it's about sharing ideas. I didn't get that originally and missed many opportunities at conferences to meet people instead of walking up and, and just trying to connect and see who was around. I would tend to hide to myself and wait for the next session. And when I learned to, to start talking to people, it really changed my world. It built a much bigger set of ideas. And I still don't agree with everybody I talk to, but I, I relish every moment to connect to another person, learn something new, challenge my ideas. Networking is so huge. And we're not out there dating. We're just learning and sharing. That's what it's about. It's not something to be afraid of. I think that if someone's more junior in their career, they may be a little more uncertain about themselves. They may not have, even beyond if you're social or more closed off or more shy, I think in addition to that, a lot of people, myself included earlier in my career, I didn't feel like I had enough to share. I was, I was nervous about opening up. I felt like I hadn't done enough. And so, it's it half of it is being comfortable enough to get up and talk to someone to say hey you know how do you find the conference it's another thing to then be afraid to say oh man what are they going to ask me like do i am i going to sound dumb i think that a lot of us fall into that or or maybe used to fall into that that holds us back and so maybe with that i mean what's the cost of if anyone but someone earlier in their career if they don't try to network and don't try to socialize What's the, what's the negative, what's the penalty of, if you fall into that category, what should you warn people of? Well, so there's two things that happen there. One of them, you talk about confidence. I think that the confidence problem is common to people. If you just accept the fact that you don't have to know everything, maybe then it's okay to go talk to someone and they correct you and you, you accept that. And then, then suddenly Two conferences later, someone's saying, well, what do you think about this? And you offer an opinion that you learn. Suddenly, you're the smart guy. And that happens because you just kind of stepped out there. 
the dangerous thing I think to worry about is there are some people that dominate the room and you don't want to be that person. It's not great to think you know it all. It's much better to offer an idea with some, you know, here's what I heard. I think it sounds pretty good. And then see where it goes with that. That's a better way to get connected to people and have the conversation. How does that happen in our in our field? I was just thinking when you made that statement, I've been both. I have been sort of candidate number one that's afraid to say anything. And I've also been the one who has unfairly dominated the room. How does that happen? Like, why, how, do, how are we in a field where, because we've all been pretty much any round table or conference we've been to, there's somebody who just blows it up. Again, as a mentoring point, if you're coaching, maybe uh, let's say you're going to take somebody to a conference with you, the Cosmopolitan Hotel, there's a large security conference and you're there and you're taking maybe a friend from out of town and maybe they're more junior. What's the coaching <laughs> that you have on that? And maybe a secondary question, what's your coaching? But what do you think the role is of more senior staff sort of facilitating those conversations in those hallway chats? The coaching to the the newer person in, the, in that space that's learning and growing, listen an awful lot. I think that that's the biggest coaching point. And that, I mean, that goes for leaders too. I've had uh, groups I've been involved with where I just caught myself and realized, wow, I'm doing it again. I'm not listening to the other person. And that listening is both where you learn stuff and it's where you show respect to the speaker. And then the other piece is be kind. If you've got an opposing opinion, that's fine. Just don't be a jerk about it. Say, well, you know, here's really how I kind of look at that and offer up your opinion and feel strong about it if you feel strong about it and then let people respond to it. You'll either find out that people really resonate with what you talked about and suddenly you go from being the new person that doesn't know much to, wow, you're an expert on this one thing. Or people offer, again, some counterpoints and you learn and grow. So that's kind of the younger person. I think to the leaders, we didn't get here yesterday, there was a path. We need to be inviting and kind to the people that are still learning and still coming. And what an opportunity to shape the next generation, to shape people to avoid the mistakes we've made. Because if you've been in this game for a while, if you've moved up in the organization, trust me, you've made plenty of mistakes. And if you can help the next person to make fewer it's a stronger community and they'll thank you for it. They really will when they, they see that they got to dodge a bullet because you pointed it out to them. I can tell you from my past, working on networking, starting with, in this example, with a local community group, gave me then a platform when I went to more national events. Inevitably, I would at least know one person there. And I felt like I could get more done and I felt like I had a better time because I at least knew one person there and that sort of spread. And I accidentally fell into figuring that out. It wasn't something that I knew. It was just dumb luck. But having someone, if I had had someone in a leadership role that was sort of a steward of networking and, and introducing me to the right people and maybe even coaching me on how to act. <laughs> What a wonderful thing that could have been. And so I completely agree that that's something that might even be a um, point of growth for all of us to think about, you know, how much of that have we done? Uh, how much of it are we planning to do? It's a small thing, but man, is it big. There's a thing that we do in Las Vegas. It's not unique here. I did this in previous cities where I've worked. And I, I, my peers, we talk about these things. 
there's a private group that the leaders in security across the city, and that's not just in the gaming industry, that's all industries. We meet up quarterly and uh, we do have a sponsor for, we keep rotating who those are, but it's a real interesting deal because the structure of ours is we have a closed meeting and we talk very candidly. And then after that, there's usually a cocktail hour, something along that model. And that's where the vendor gets to kind of come and wander around and chat with us. But the, the thing that we require is not only are they sponsoring us for the cocktail hour, but we invite to that cocktail hour a small number of students, of people new to the industry. We put out feelers among our networks to say who'd be interested in dropping by and just participating in this. And that's kind of a give back to the community, but it's also exactly what you just described, which is you know, levering an opportunity to connect people into the network and get them started. I really love those sort of things and love seeing it when I got here and encourage it to all the leaders that I bumped into is if you're in one of those groups, see if you can get the group to not only take care of the leaders and offer them an opportunity, but maybe invite a small number of up and comers because they're the going to be the leaders in, in the future for us. You bring up an interesting point. One of the things that is hard to synthesize, you may work in an environment where you're not really allowed or it's not conducive to bring junior staff into senior meetings. Or even if you can, it just doesn't work out always. And by the way, for those that are listening, you know you've got a good organization when you can bring a shadow to high-end meetings. But the thing you get there, even if you don't interact, you can listen, you can watch, you get a sense for the feel of the room. And it is like getting comfortable with anything else. If you have that exposure, you're not as nervous when it's your time to go in and present. I used to have terrible anxiety when I had to do a big presentation. I wouldn't sleep, you know, all this, the nerves. But the more you have in terms of contact hours, the better it evens all of that out. And so what you just described, Michael, is a way that's an adjunct to this other sort of company meeting it's a way for people who might not be a CISO or a security leader to sit in the room. What questions are asked? How do people treat one another? What's concerning? How do they communicate? Like, what words are being used? All of that is super important, and it's often overlooked. I don't know if you have any other thoughts that you'd add to that, but that's so important to me. I think that's first make the situation. So we both kind of described a version of that. If you're going to a conference and you've got junior staff going to the conference, don't let them drift, invite them to things. Beyond that, I do one-on-ones with my staff. That's just kind of a half-hour meeting on a regular basis that allows them to ask questions, doesn't have to be the projects they're working on, and to offer feedback and to be fairly frank about it. It helps because if we've been in a meeting, we debrief or they have a question and it's a safe zone to say, well, how do I do this? These are all learning moments. And then a little bit beyond that is the further you go in your career, the greater obligation I think you have to at least contribute back as far as you can. And so periodically, uh, I'll get the requests from a referral. I'll get that from an interview that this isn't going to work. But then the person reaches back and says, could, could I just meet with you and chat? And I try to pick those up. They cost me 45 minutes. 
and a cup of coffee and some conversation and it helps that other person. And that's what makes our community great. And I think the fun thing about that is you never know those sort of outreaches, whether you referred or you, you had that conversation with someone, they're going to cross paths again. That may be a future worker or it may be a future person who just calls you up on the phone and says, hey, did you hear about this? Nine times out of 10, probably you did. But that one time, it's so worth it to have someone that reaches back. No question. And I think that the key point I took from what you just said is, in the example was an interview process. So unfortunately, we can't hire everyone who's interested. Sometimes we can, I guess, but sometimes we have to make a tough choice. And in that example, maybe the number two or number three candidate. So first off, if you're listening to the show, I would encourage you to always reach back out to the hiring manager, in this case, Michael's case, the CISO, and just ask, say, hey, can I get kind of an off-the-record debrief? That's number one. And for the CISOs or the senior leaders listening, if they reach out, please give them your time. It is a very small world. They will remember your feedback forever. There's many of us in our career that maybe hadn't been treated very well during an interview process, or maybe it's a, been a tough road, or maybe you just messed up. But getting that feedback and internalizing it and making yourself better, that's a great story to tell in and of itself. And so I think that the example that Michael's setting here is, is a good one to consider and follow in both directions. I can't stress that enough. I remember how frustrated I was at several points in my career interviewing and not getting the job and, and, be, and, and feeling like I got a BS reason why, right? And not having that sort of that feedback loop. You never know. You might need this, fo- the, need this relationship in the future. Who knows who they become in the future too, right? So I think that's a, another sort of checklist item that we all should add. And I don't know if Michael, if you had a, any other points you wanted to add to that topic, any other thoughts uh, before we went on? Yeah, I think the one thing would be if you come back and ask, also it's how you ask the question. So we have to be smart on both sides of the table. If, uh, if you come back after an interview and you ask, hey, could you give me some insights on how I could do better or maybe another direction, as opposed to why didn't I get the job? I think if, if, we, <laughs> yeah. if we ask the question well and we're kind, it opens doors. And a lot of times we really do want to share, but, but it's open the door nicely. We're all people. I think we do really like a lot of people we bump into. We just can't pick them up or they're just not a direct fit. Right. I think that's a good piece of advice. It's how you phrase it is extremely important. Asking just why didn't I get the job is not the most articulate thing or method, but getting feedback is is important and hopefully they give it to you. I want to move on to a point. We got on the topic of confidence last we spoke. And I find it interesting that people that often lack confidence myself, and we all still lack confidence in some way. But earlier in my career, I I lacked it pretty much in everything I did. But one of the things I think that I didn't do well enough is simply say, I don't know. Because I lacked confidence, I would make up something or stutter around or rather than just saying, everything was easier to do rather than just saying, I don't know. Why do you think that is the case? Why do many security people struggle with just those, that simple phrase? Why are we hung up on that, Michael? Well, I think there's a culture of we have to be super smart, super cool kids in this area. I don't know why that is the case. Maybe some of it is 
people work hard, long hours. And then when they go out to play, there's a lot of stories told. Some of them are a little embellished. Or it's just the thing of people somehow when they were young, got the feeling it was shameful not to know something. However, it came about, a lot of us ended up in that place. A long time ago, I learned, number one, it's just the facts that if you don't know, and number two, it's far worse to make something up because if the other person is pretty savvy, and if you're talking to leaders, they probably are pretty savvy. That's how they got there. When you turn on the fog machine, all it does is irritate them. And it shows that you don't have the integrity to just offer a, I don't have an answer, answer. So I learned early on, just, just say, I don't know. Like, be a person of integrity all the way around. And, and that includes admitting that we've all got limits. The beauty of that is there's so many smart people around that as soon as you say, could someone help me with this? People who know love to share generally. And now all of a sudden, you know, you get better. So it's, it's a powerful thing. I don't know is the most powerful thing that I've used both with uh, people who work for me because it shows I'm not arrogant and it's worked really well with people I report to. I've told the CIO, uh, our CEO, both of them on various occasions, I don't have the answer to that. I'll go dig for it. And they would much rather hear that because if they're worried about it, I just heard X. I say, well, I don't know about that case, but I can go dig into it. And yep. then you respond back. Now, all of a sudden, they're like, they have greater confidence. It's like, okay, it's just human. We're, we're, we're interchanging at both our capability and the limits. Your statement, I think, I actually wrote it down. I keep notes. And it's just the, I don't know, equates to admitting that we have limits. And I think that when we play around with that in a wrong way, in a wrongful way, it does nothing but what you noted, and that's an erosion of confidence. And so you never want anyone, especially in a position in information security at any level, to question sort of like the confidence of your answers or the confidence associated with even your presence in the room as you're, as you're managing through a crisis or requesting budget or trying to get someone hired. And so I think that, that we hurt ourselves often because of hubris is a silent killer for many of us in the field. So I like your notion, the phrase of admit we have limits. Again, I, I, enough to sort of make note of it. You talked a fair amount about what you just called the headspace, getting into your own headspace. It's a little bit related to what we just mentioned, but you also said, don't dance in front of power. What does that mean? There's an attitude of some people of, I'm going to get ahead by showcasing, showboating, mm. and that sort of overplaying who you are, how important you are, who you think you know. A lot of times people say, oh, I know so-and-so, and they actually don't. The number of times I've had someone say, well, I'm going to go take this too, and they, they name drop the CEO. Go ahead. That sort of play is not good because typically you have to back off from it. You were just trying to push yourself out there more than you probably should have. And it's not your best self. So I try to avoid that. And when I see people doing it, it's just kind of an indicator of, well, I think I'm going to back off and watch how this one goes because it usually doesn't go well. And if it's someone I have a relationship with, I may catch them later on and try to figure out a very, a very kind way of suggesting that they not do that because it's not helpful. We talked also about 
This has been an ongoing theme, actually, and a really healthy one on a couple different shows and conversations I've had with executives of late, where there's a process or a point in someone's career where they get feedback or they request feedback, or maybe it's even something they initiate. But you said you had coaching after a 360 review at one point in your career, and it was on the topic of confidence versus arrogance, which is another area that I've had trouble with in my past because I get so committed to something and there's such confidence through that. To some people, confidence is arrogance and vice versa. So at one point you had a 360 review and and you found out that people were, were maybe a little bit afraid of you. That was their perception, maybe not reality, but their perception. Talk to me a little bit about the value of that type of 360 review? Would you recommend other people to do it? And, and how would you go about it uh, if they haven't had something like that? And then, then maybe we can talk more about your direct experience. But is it a tool that you think is worthwhile? And, and do you think people struggle with the confidence versus arrogance in our field? I think people definitely struggle with recognizing and working that line correctly. Yes. So kind of the start of confidence, we talked about it early on. And now cycling back from not the how do you get confidence as a younger professional, but how do you manage not turning that into something ugly as a leader? It is, there's an attitude behind it. And then there's a self-awareness. The coaching or 360 opportunities, and I've been through a couple of them, can be very useful. You have to be open enough if you're given that opportunity to participate in one of those programs to realize that we all have egos and we all have styles, and we're not trying to eliminate either one of those, but you've got to listen to what's coming at. And the case for me was people had felt I was cold and, and a bit inaccessible. And in certain circumstances, yeah, a little bit of fear producing, although that was certainly never the intent. And that's the hard part. Like you don't know the intent in the other person's head. But the observed behaviors can give you a feel one way or the other. So out of that, I tried to learn to be a bit kinder, a bit more sharing of why I thought what I did, slowing down listening, and that changed the way people perceive me. And so towards the idea of dodging arrogance, it's being a little more open, sharing what you do and don't know. That starts to take that arrogant edge away. And uh, you could still be, here's what I do know. And here's why I feel this way or why I lead this way. And then people start to understand the decisions you're making. And if it's done that way, uh, where it's open and on the table, then people can challenge it. And if you welcome the challenge, suddenly your decisions aren't so much arrogant, they're, they're informed. I think that's a great way of putting it. And I think the other thing is you mentioned is the more, especially in leadership, the more willing you are to say you don't know. To me, There's a connection between saying you don't know and not trying to own everything. Many security people that are senior try to own everything. And and when you try to own everything, then the outcome of that is that you don't often delegate well. Lacking delegation is an erosion of trust. So there's sort of those, there's these four steps there, right? And so if you're, if there's an erosion of trust in your team, then, then, well, are you letting them grow or do they feel whole? And how are you committed to being a leader or maybe still something else, right? And so there's this sort of mesh work of attributes that I think getting into, you know, focusing on, do people think I'm arrogant? Do people think I'm trying to be the smartest person in the room? 
You referenced something, and I had never uh, heard it mentioned before. I haven't heard this sort of word combination before, but relational confidence that's tied to transparency and delivery of information. Maybe spend a second on that, because I think that that's really important. That was kind of the solution space for you to get to, to get around the, the cold and non-relational perception of you. You spend a second on that and kind of unpack that and, and just to educate us how you got there? So I think in part it's related to, I mentioned earlier, having one-on-ones with staff. I think part of it has been being willing to open up and, and share with people a little bit on a personal level with other leaders. And, and then the other thing is I've put this out in front of people, which is you're always welcome to argue with me. Just bring the reason and allowing that space for the debate understanding that sometimes you're going to come to me with with a concern or a complaint and I'm going to explain to you why what happened and now you understand why that was and you might agree with my position or you're going to bring me your reason and then I think about it and go oh yeah, I didn't know that let's do it your way instead and sometimes you meet in the middle and both myself and the other person realize that we are both off the mark a bit we talk about it some more and come up with a third solution if you do that consistently like you can't just do it once because you heard it or you read it, the book or something. Like you just have to make that part of what you do. And now people don't have to have a hug fest, but people do understand that there's a relationship there that they can approach, that it's very interactive. And now the conversations get better and better because we're solutioning together. We're enabling the business. We're helping one another. And that does not matter, by the way, if it's myself and people who work for me, if it's me to my boss, if it's peers, that model works all directions. One of the things you shared with me, you said that if you're doing your job right, that, quote, we are fixing the broken gears, unquote. And it was a, an answer. One of my favorite questions is, what do you think we should be getting credit for that we're not? I think that, that credit is important, not for the executive necessarily, although it helps, but security programs are often only evaluated on failures. And that's, that's a pretty tough thing. So you said that the answer to that was fixing broken gears. What gears are you trying to fix as a security leader in terms of credit? Oh, so we just have to back up a step in security leader to a fair extent, not exclusively, but a fair extent is, is a technology leader too. The technology drives the business. And You can walk around and just point out failures all the time, but that goes back to the problem of arrogance. It doesn't feel very good. Or you can be part of the solution, which is someone calls you to ask you about something. Maybe they're blaming the security systems. And then you dig in, you find out, well, actually, the security systems are just fine. It's that application or that process is broken. That only gets you a little bit. Diving in with the people who operate those things and helping them understand why that thing is not acting properly, why it's slow, why it throws errors. If you can fix those things, sometimes it's as simple as the data flowing through the system just isn't clean. Those are experienced eyes spot those things. They're harder things to spot sometimes. They're more subtle. But if you get in there and you fix those foundationals, by the way, they're not security. They're operational. But if you do that consistently, you're making the business better. And you're probably not going to get credit initially, but over time, people talk 
And when they start inviting you to solve problems, other leaders like, why are you calling a security team? It's because they help us fix things. Now we change the value proposition. I certainly don't want the security people to be the fix-it people. We're not supposed to be, but I think we should be contributing all the time. And I think that gets missed if we can help uh, other people see that we are part of the solution, then they're more willing to accept the controls because they realize that if you have good controls, it fills a, ma- a mantra that I have. And that mantra is good operations. You know, The machines are working well is good security because when things are doing what they're supposed to be doing, that's good. And good security is good operations because the controls keep the systems from breaking or being abused. That's the partnership. Absolutely. I, I think that in many organizations, the security team has sometimes superior visibility or capability to identify issues. If you start looking into problems with credentials, problems with systems performance, one of the story I like to tell is at a prior employer, there was another three-letter organization that ran the data center. And they were paid for the number of servers they supported. But in the course of incident response, inevitably we would find, or hunting, we would find servers that were sort of the petri dish of of infection, but should have been shut off and retired permanently. But the company was still paying for them to be quote unquote managed. They were just nothing but on. And so we began tracking the number of servers we found that should have been retired. So that became sort of a a method of recouping money from this other big company that was managing our data center. And to me, that was really important. It was also a great story to tell. Many people hated me telling that story, but inevitably we would find, you know, we would drive our little digital trash truck around and find this stuff. And over time, we garnered more respect from IT in general, and they would call us to help solve other problems, which is exactly the situation you described. Any advice on how to do that diplomatically? I think the best way is to be a solution provider, right? No one likes someone who just brings them problems. Always bring a a solution when you bring a problem. When you are finding these things, try to understand what the negative effects they cause are so you can explain that. And then try to work with people on solutions. Sometimes uh, I've had this where people go, oh, yeah, but there's just no time to do it. Well, I can sometimes from a security perspective, turn that into a security issue, like it's an availability issue in the operations. Hmm. So sometimes you do it by, by just directly cleaning it up with them. Sometimes you do it by saying, okay, you want me to push on you. I've often gone to others and said, let's fix this control. And they're like, I don't like that control. I'm not going to do it. Mm-hmm. And then internal audit is going around and finding things. Well, I've found over my career, if I see something that operationally can be tightened up a bit, I have the conversation and it usually goes like this. If you'll do it with this control and internal audit comes around and finds a problem with it, you can send them over to me and I will defend it. But if you don't, well, you can deal with the terminal audit yourself. Right. Sometimes that's the nudge that they need or just the insurance program that they need. It's like, okay, well, then we'll go make the change. And by the way, internal audit comes, we're sending them to you. It's like, great. And more times than not, it's 
either they ask us to push them or they just need a little nudge and some help, some guidance so that they can get better. If we take the attitude of it's not an us versus them in any circumstance, it's just making the company better, we can get a lot done. One of the things that is kind of one of my pet peeves these days, and I think we struggle with in information security is trying to own too much. Meaning I see security teams and CISOs agreeing to own all of security with very little help from anyone else. You can't do it alone. I mean, the statement you made earlier is exactly that. You know, good security is good operations and you have to have good ops. Even basic, like the CIS controls, which the first two are effectively asset lists for hardware and software, effectively asset lists and owners. I'm amazed at how many companies have a security program in place, but don't have good asset control, meaning good definition of what's their, you know, their field of fire. What do they own and who owns it? Yet the CISO is on the, on the, on the books for protecting it. So you have a situation where IT or somebody has to know what they own or don't own. You can't protect what you don't know is there. And so I have, I see Many CISOs trying to overcompensate for that, meaning they shouldn't, I don't believe they should own CIS control one and two, right? They're a constituent in that. Someone else has to own an asset inventory and then the CISO should protect it. What advice do you have if you're in that trick bag? How do you avoid that problem? What, what coaching would you have to the security leader listening that's trying to protect something and there's, there's not a list of things which to protect? How do you manage that? So it is this weird thing about trying to own everything is uh, definitely not a path to success. And how you find everything, though, is you make sure that everything that gets found gets an owner. That can be done through a registry. We have a version of that where I'm at now, and I've seen that in prior organizations. And where it gets very successful is if you take every app, and most organizations have a lot of them. Uh, some of them are internal on a server. Some of them are in the cloud. But every app has a business owner, right? That's not security. And you have an IT owner. That's people who handle the technology behind it. And now when there's a technology issue, you work with that technology owner. And if they need more money to fix it, or they have to have some downtime to fix it, that technology owner goes to their business owner to say, hey, we want to make sure this is operating well for you. So we need an outage window. Notice nowhere in that conversation was their security because security didn't need to be in the middle of that. If they need a backing, certainly can join and say, it's because of patching. But a lot of times the business owner is like, okay. And by having the people in IT for each application, you know, who owns and supports, they're driving it. And when they need a backing, when they need a reason, they turn to their leaders, their CISO. Then you've empowered that other IT leader to own their stuff. And ownership is, I think, the, the most powerful thing you can do in terms of stewardship, right? If, if I say you own taking care of this for the company, you then feel, I'm going to take care of this. And that stewardship model is a whole lot easier than just a bunch of people punching keys to keep things running. And, oh, security is the CISO's problem and finance is the CFO's problem. Let's get the balance right by putting business owners and technology owners, and then we support them in what they're trying to accomplish. You said to me once, and I really like this, that the business owner is the one that owns the motivation. Like what's the motivation of this thing? 
right? What's the sort of the energy behind it? And then the IT owner is care and feeding, and that does not include security. You said it earlier, no, uh, nowhere. I think what you said is nowhere security listed in there yet, right? So it's uh, you're sort of looking at both the business owner and the IT owner. But I really like the business owner is the motivation. And if we don't have somebody to own the motivation, why are we doing it? That to me is the is the question. You can't have things without owners, and everything that's owned should have a motivation for it to be owned. Otherwise, maybe it shouldn't be there. And that's the I think many organizations lack the motivation owner. And so there's just something that's there and it's sort of just running itself. And then, you know, there's downstream issues for the security team. There's no, there's no way, there's not a good change window. We don't know if we can patch it or not. It's not producing logs that are helpful. It doesn't uh, support SAML or some sort of federation client, whatever, right? And it's just a mess. So I, I like that, that sort of separation. Anything else that you would mention related to this? on ownership or kind of how to avoid these issues or any just advice to the young and frustrated security professional uh, related to, to this or good operations? I think we have to keep in mind that our goal is to enable the business, which is if there's, like you mentioned, SAML, I've seen this over and over where someone gets something cloud-based, but it's got its own one more password. It's not centrally controlled. That's a security risk. We could look at that as a technology issue and, and go down that that uh, hole and see what you know, we can do, but it will not change. It won't change until you talk to the business leader and say, hey, you will have this application. We want to connect it. There's a thing called SAML. Don't worry about what it is. But if we do that, then you can get the single sign-on we offer for everything else. It'll be easier for you. Now, the business owner doesn't care one bit about the security implications of this conversation, but they'll embrace that we're actually enabling the business and making it more frictionless. And they'll say, oh yeah, go ahead and do it. If you tried to argue that thing from a technology perspective, they don't have the time. So I think when you take the business view and you take what we can do, match them up, now we're having a really good conversation. I absolutely agree. I like the SAML example and sort of the use case that you described there. I've got one final question, and it's tied uh, to every show. I think every show we've done, which is uh, pursuant to the name of the show, the new CISO. What does being a new CISO mean to you, Michael? From the perspective of walking into a new organization, and sometimes that's walking into a new department you haven't interacted with much before, or it could be a, a whole new role, a new company. It's about looking at the technology and processes that are already there, figuring out for the ones that people feel are broken, why they're broken. Is it the way it was deployed? Is it the technology? Is it how we use it? Maybe we just need more training and try and work that out. And ultimately, if it needs to be replaced, then get it replaced. But I think it's understanding what's there and the focus on making it effective for the business and keeping it really simple. If you do that, things move forward better and uh, you're not making things harder as you go. You're actually making it easier. Michael, thank you so much for your time today. You've been a wonderful guest. Thanks for all that you've shared. Uh, it's been a privilege. That's it for this episode of the new CISO. Thank you for listening. Check out more episodes on exabeam.com forward slash podcast 
And remember to rate, review, and subscribe to get brand new episodes first.